there's Stone Age, there's a Bronze Age, there's an Iron Age, but very much now we're talking about the Plastic Age. Hello and welcome to Episode 1 of the Plastic The Last Straw podcast. Throughout this series, we will be exploring the problem with plastics as we hear from the experts in the field, as well as the individuals and organisations who are trying to make a difference. Along the way, we will be highlighting the unique challenges, innovations and opportunities surrounding plastic pollution. Plastic The Last Straw is produced by TuneFM at the University of New England in partnership with the Environmental Protection Authority of New South Wales. We would like to acknowledge that this podcast is being recorded on Anawan land and pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. In today's episode, prepare to enter into the plastic age with us as we consider what plastic actually is, its history and what our relationship with it looks like today. Plastic is one of the most important environmental issues humanity is facing at present and is a type of pollution that has become embedded within daily life on Earth. There are very few places left on our planet, if any, that you could visit and find completely undisturbed by the presence of plastic in some form or other. Throughout this episode, we'll be hearing from Dr. Susan Wilson from the Pollution Science Research Group at the University of New England. Dr. Wilson told us about the important work being done by the group at UNE, as well as how and why the research group was formed. So I'm Associate Professor in Environmental Pollution at UNE, and I jointly run the UNE Pollution Science Research Group with my colleague, Dr. Matt Tai. So it's a group of usually up to about 10 early career researchers, um, honours, masters, PhD students, but also postdocs as well. And we research questions on pollutants in the environment, sort of what they are, and this includes microplastics as well, um, the hazards they present, their ecotoxicity, uh, how they behave, where they go, um, and what we can do about it, remediation, rehabilitation. So we work on a range of pollutants, legacy pollutants, as well as emerging concerns such as microplastics. Um, And we also work with industry and stakeholder collaborators so that we feed our research outcomes into positive strategies for moving forward. I came out from Europe with a pollution background and in UNE we didn't have a focus on pollutants. We, We actually teach out of soil science in UNE as well in the School of Environmental Rural Science. It's a huge global issue, pollution. Um, and it employs many people and there's much research being undertaken across the globe. And so we built it into our soil units to begin with, but then it's broadened as well. So it really was um, important for us in regional rural Australia to have a pollution focus at UNE. We're actually well known in the sort of 10 years that we've been formed as a cohort We're well known in Australia and we're part of the quorum of pollution researchers across Australia feeding into um, needs globally in this research space. When we spoke with Dr Wilson, she described the pervasiveness of microplastics and explained to us how it is that they've been able to spread across the globe. You know, they're found in the sea, rivers, soils, in blood, in our beer. And now we know that they can cross the human placenta as well. So they're everywhere. 
We now know that they move with global air currents and we find them in all areas of the world where there's never been plastics used at all. They move in global air currents and end up in Antarctica and Arctic. They move up in, they enter the food chain. They're in our blood. They're in our beer. You know, every time we open a packet of chips, we breathe in microplastics. And breathing in is one of the most important exposure routes for us. It's clear that plastic remains an issue that we are yet to adequately address. At present, we are producing more plastic than ever before, with our global production rate estimated at more than 380 million metric tonnes per year. To put that into perspective, the amount of plastic being produced yearly roughly aligns with the combined total weight of humanity. While these are global figures, the situation isn't much better at home. Despite what might be considered an early arrival on the environmental scene, with well-known and popular national initiatives like Clean Up Australia Day beginning in the 80s, we are considered one of the least sustainable developed nations. In MIT's The Green Future Index rankings for 2022, we were placed at 52 out of the 76 countries ranked, with our slow and uneven progress or commitment toward building a green future being cited. You should keep in mind that studies suggest that the current rates of plastic production and pollution are set to soar even higher in the coming years, pushing us well beyond Earth's ecological boundaries, if we haven't passed them already. We also need to account for the fact that research in this area, especially when it comes to things like microplastics and nanoplastics, is still emerging. Dr. Susan Wilson explains. Microplastics, um, you know, we've used plastics since the 1950s, but the literature, the research literature on microplastics has really only been there in the last 10 years. And I would say there's still huge gaps um, and it really exponentially increased five years ago. We really had no handle on it. And it's been driven by the concerns about recycling and um, initially the concerns in the marine environment. Even up to five years ago, our analytical techniques were really not adequate and, and we're, we're, they're not great at the moment. We're, we're improving and improving, but we've really had to work on anal- analytical techniques. So, yeah, even to just detect the microplastics and the chemicals that are associated with them. Dr. Wilson pointed out that not only are our research methods still developing, but that our understanding of when microplastics reach harmful levels isn't well defined yet either. At the moment, we don't know what safe levels are, putting it that way. That, yeah, so that's where we're at. But we do know, we do know that they cause harm. And these bands that are coming in and moving towards a circular economy better um, is all steps in the right direction. Because really, I have um, figures here. There's just been a recent paper out since um, the 1950s. 8.1 billion tons of plastics has been produced. And with the pandemic and face masks and medical protective equipment, that's increased. And they're estimating at current rates that by 2050, if we don't do something about it, we're going to be producing 34 billion tons of plastics. And only at the moment, only a third of that is recycled. In fact, in Australia, in our most recent waste report, only 15% of our plastic waste is recycled. For a material that has existed for such a short period of human history, plastic has had extensive and far-reaching consequences. So what is it about plastic itself that can be so damaging? 
Dr. Susan Wilson explained. There's a number of concerns with plastics, with microplastics, particularly in the environment, because they persist, obviously. They, you know, they can last from between 20 to 500 years in the environment. They fragment as well into small particles. There's also the chemicals that are associated with it. Dyes and plasticizers, they have toxic effects. And microplastics act as transporters for other pollutants in the environment, like metals and they act as transporters to organisms, for example. Plastics are a whole range of different chemical compounds. Synthetic is is man-made, but there's two types of plastics that we really focus on in the environment. It's the plastics that we intentionally put into products, like into clothing, um, into cosmetics, and there's the plastics that we, the microplastics that break down to smaller plastics. So you can either have it intentionally added or it can end up in the environment by being broken down. So we basically define microplastics, which is typically what we all work on is the smaller particles, as those particles that are less than five millimeters in diameter. But there's other definitions at the moment coming up, which are called nanoplastics, even smaller. And that definition is just being formulated at the moment. But the size and the shape and the, ke- and the actual plastic chemical that they're made up of are all important to what they do in the environment and to us and um, where they go, how they behave too. And we're only just grappling with that. The research, we were just going, oh, there's microplastics, there's beads, We'll, we'll look at those. But what we're finding, that's not the case. Those beads can be manufactured. They can end up being formed in the environment. They have different shapes, different morphology, and that all is really important to what we're seeing on effects at the moment. So we're really just gathering the data to do our risk assessments to understand what the problem is at the moment because we don't really understand fully what the... We know there's microplastics and plastics in the environment, but we don't really understand what that problem is for us at the moment. And, and that that determines our decisions onto you know, what, what we policy and practice too. So we really need to understand the practice to to bring in guidelines, to bring in management. And that all sort of sits ahead of the fact that we do know we shouldn't be using plastic. We we need to substitute for plastics and we need to understand and advance our recycling. It's clear to us today that becoming so dependent on a material that we can't effectively dispose of and that's consequences are yet to be fully understood was a major mistake. But was our relationship with plastic always this toxic? Dr Martin Gibbs, a professor of Australian archaeology at the University of New England, recently guided us through its history. So the first plastics emerged really about 1,200 years ago and, and that's with cultures like the Olmec who take you know, natural materials and, and, and create pliable materials. But it's in the 19th century that we see the invention of vulcanised rubber because they need uh, rubber for car tyres and, and car rims and things like that. By around the turn of the 20th century, we start to get plastics in the way that we know them. So we go through several different phases. First off, we have Bakelite, 
which is the sort of hard plastic that you see old radios made of. By about the 1930s, we're starting to see the emergence of things like uh, polymers. And really, it's after World War II that they become consumer items. So during the war, they're used very popularly for all sorts of uh, wartime items and uh, uh, construction materials. But by the 1950s, plastics are well embedded in consumer items. And then that leads to the situation that we have today, where plastics make up an enormous part of our material culture. The problem with plastic isn't limited only to its overproduction, but also lies with its durability. Plastics are so resilient that they are now even forming their own distinct layer within the archaeological record and have been, according to UNE's Dr Martin Gibbs, since around the 1950s. Modern plastics in the form that we know them most popularly really do start to appear in the archaeological record after World War II. And quite obviously, there's a massive increase since that time. So it might be worth knowing that there's a a few projects which specifically look at the archaeology of modern garbage, the grandparent being the Tucson Archaeological Project under the late William Rathje. So they, starting from the 1970s, went out and they started to excavate landfills that dated from the post-war period to try to look at things like how people consume, what they throw away, and how long those things last. One of the interesting things they discovered was that plastics make up something around 14% of your average landfill from the 1950s onwards. We're now at the point where I think Americans produce something like 300 million tonnes of plastic waste per year. So that is an awful lot of plastic that's going into the ground and just sitting there. Archaeology structures itself around understanding the the human past through material remains. And and just as a sort of a shorthand, we talk about there's Stone Age, there's a Bronze Age, there's an Iron Age. But very much now we're talking about the Plastic Age because plastics appear as this very distinctive layer within the archaeological record, an ongoing layer, if, if you like. What they're telling us is something about how we see ourselves in the future, in in a sense. Archaeology is showing that the plastics are not degrading. When you put a plastic into a landfill, it actually hermetically seals the material in and it really does not deteriorate. So plastic's going to become a massive archaeological marker. It may well be that in the future we find ways to not use plastics and, and therefore it may be a blip on the archaeological radar. But for the moment, of course, we have this dilemma of plastics going to landfill is one way of disposing of them. Plastics being left um, out in the sun, degrading into microplastics, plastics turning up all, all through the archaeological record. And there have been a number of cases in, in recent years where people have done excavations of quite ancient sites, but then had to deal with plastic infiltrating into those ancient archaeological deposits by a whole series of things like, you know, rabbit holes and whatever. But, you know, you can be excavating a 3,000-year-old site and come across a plastic teaspoon, which is incredibly disconcerting. A plastic teaspoon is as much a valid artefact as one that's made of silver or of pewter um, or of any other age. Do we keep or value them? Well, in the not-too-distant past, we used to throw the modern material out, but we've seen Really, since the 1980s, the emergence of what we call contemporary archaeology, which does focus on not just the technologies that we use, the way they change, 
the types of materials that we incorporate, the types of materials we don't incorporate. It, it's fascinating, but fascinating in the sense that it's absolutely terrifying how fast the world is changing since World War II. The question of how our manufacturing, use and disposal of plastic will colour this period of human history and what it will show future generations about the attitudes and values of our cultures and societies is certainly one worth asking. Dr Martin Gibbs continues. One of the big questions is, when does plastic waste actually become valuable archaeological items? In, in a sense, immediately, because they tell us something about how we're living today and how we view consumption and how we view discard. You know, we, we're not recycling plastics. That's the truth of it. Uh, we try very hard and we put things into recycle containers, which then get um, put into a waste transfer station, which then get put into a container, which then get sent to another country so we don't have to look at it. And there's essentially an archaeology of the mobility of waste now emerging, that the things that we don't want to see and can't quite deal with get sent to other countries and then into their archaeological record. As we've now learned, plastic was, at its beginning, a groundbreaking material that excited innovators and inventors around the world who were drawn to its vast potential. It removed our need to plunder the natural environment for things like ivory and tortoiseshell and allowed for previously unthinkable advancements across numerous sectors. Today, plastic is a bigger part of daily life than ever before, with purpose and value in the lives of many, if not all of us. You would be hard-pressed to make it through a single day without using or interacting with plastic in some form. In fact, our success with plastic, its incredible effectiveness and range of utility, actually forms an important layer of the current problem. When we spoke with Siobhan Trellfall, a projects officer at Oceanwatch Australia, about their source reduction project with bait bags, she described a need for consumers to adjust their expectations of plastic alternatives. One of the outcomes we found was that alternatives are probably never going to be as good as plastic. And I think that we found that we need to kind of have a rethink about what our expectations are for these alternatives. And, and we need to realize that, yeah, they're never going to be as great <laughs> as plastic is, you know, for maintaining that quality. But plastic has detrimental impact on the marine environment. And so we need to reset our expectations and go, okay, well, which alternatives are the best for us, will work the best for us? And that's where we need to work with innovators and packaging companies to find out what, what is going to be the best for them and how can we continue to work on these alternatives to find the best solution for them to uptake it. And the thing is the, the businesses out there are really kind of the heart of the solution with the uptake of these and to find sustainable alternatives that work for them is is key to that to that solution. So it's something that that still needs a lot of work, but I've seen quite a few companies, not necessarily in bait bags, but in general starting to look at these alternatives and start to to trial some. So yeah, it's I, I'm feeling really positive about it. I think that yeah, there's quirks to these solutions, but I think that businesses are really keen to take them on board. Siobhan from Oceanwatch also identified us as individuals, alongside businesses themselves, as being crucial to the reduction and prevention of plastic pollution. So in terms of moving forward and dealing with this plastics problem, the first thing I always think is that the problem of plastic is everyone's problem. And so everyone is the solution for this problem. So if everyone does something small, 
and reduces their litter, changes their behavior so that they don't litter, reduces their use of single-use plastics, then firstly, that will have a huge impact. We all realize that, you know, it's our world to look after. It's our world to take care of. And if we don't take care of it, then, you know, it's going to be unhealthy and it's going to impact us. If we all realize that and, and take the right steps to reduce our impacts, then that will be the most important solution. I also think that businesses are a really, really key, like they're, they're really the heart of the solution because if we get businesses to change the materials that they use, then those materials don't exist for us to use them and us to pollute them. So if we can get big suppliers of plastics to change to alternatives, to stop the source where it is, then that would be fantastic. And I think that that comes to the new legislation that we've got to, to stop the source of some, to, to phase out some of these plastic items. That's fantastic. I think that we could definitely move faster and we definitely need to move faster with the phase out of these items. And that's where we need to support innovators to find better alternatives. It quickly becomes obvious that in order to transition away from plastic, there need to be suitable alternatives and disposal methods in place that are capable of filling in the gaps left by its absence. But to achieve that, we first need to give the innovators and organisations working on these projects the same amount of attention, resources and energy as we did when we created plastic in the first place. Some good news on this front is that Dr. Susan Wilson has noticed a positive change in community engagement with environmental research throughout her career. The 20, 30 years that I've been doing this research, the engagement of the community has been fantastic. And we can't do our research without um, working with the community and building them into the needs. That, and they, they actually help us a lot. We have, for example, in this area, certain um, citizen science projects where the community can send us their soil samples, for example, and we archive them. And Macquarie University actually is a forerunner in this area for the soil projects. And the community have built up this database of pollutants in soil so that we across Australia, so that we have a much better handle on what we're we're working on and the impacts where they are and then what we can do about them. So yeah, a real shift. And I have to say with the extremes of the last couple of years with droughts um, and climate change, it's generally many more people are aware and want to be involved and engaged in environmental issues and pollution is one of those. She also believes that not only has there been a positive change in our communities, but also that these communities are capable of enacting meaningful change and of playing an active role in reaching a solution. So I wouldn't work in this area unless it was worthy and I felt hopeful. So yes, I've seen us grapple with other pollutants years ago. And we have a really good handle on the, something that felt insurmountable. I would say over the last couple of years, the pandemic and nobody could do anything about this has really diverted resources and attention and necessarily so, obviously. And we've accumulated and we never envisaged this three years ago when we were starting to understand microplastics, how much that 
pandemic has so impacted what we're doing now. There's so much work on masks and the microplastics that come off masks now too. So there's a whole curveball thrown at us, I suppose. But we've got the researchers, we've got the knowledge, it needs resourcing, it needs support, absolutely. But we can do something about it with the resourcing of science, particularly in Australia. Yeah. Everybody has such an important role in this, and we can't do it without you. We're researchers, there's governments, there's industry, but without you doing your bit for the environment, we can't do our job either. So yes, it's buy-in, listen to the conversations, find your substitutes as best you can, understand and help and join in where you can and how you can. You know, everybody uses plastics. You don't even sometimes know you are using plastics. And to understand, and people go out to the shops, look at the labels, look at the types of plastics. It makes a big difference whether they're recycled or not, and use those substitutes. The Environmental Protection Authority is in the process of rolling out a series of plastics bans aimed at phasing out harmful and especially single-use plastics. So far, the New South Wales EPA has implemented a ban on lightweight plastic bags in businesses, which began on the 1st of June. The impending bans, which will come into effect on the 1st of November 2022, include single-use plastic straws, stirrers, cutlery, plates, bowls and cotton buds, as well as expanded polystyrene foodware and cups and rinse-off personal care products that contain plastic microbeads. These changes are a big step in the right direction. As we've heard, it's crucial for both businesses as well as consumers to change their behaviour when it comes to plastic use. Phasing out the types of plastic targeted in these bands is already influencing a major shift in behaviour across both of these areas and is a big win for our local environments, especially when you consider that around 60% of all litter in New South Wales can be attributed to single-use plastics. Siobhan Trellfall from Ocean Watch spoke about people's adaptability when it comes to the recent transition away from lightweight plastic bags. The thing is, people will adapt. They they really adapt quite quickly. One issue that I've looked at in terms of supermarkets, like it's been really great to see the lightweight plastic bags gone. You know, they've disappeared. People got used to it. However, we still have these other alternatives that you can buy and people are now used to spending, whether it's like a dollar on a bag. And when you look at it, you go, well, this bag will take even longer to degrade in the marine environment. And it's going to persist far longer than a lightweight plastic bag ever would. So maybe the solution is to just get rid of them entirely. And, you know, you actually have to bring your reusable bag because there's no alternative. Australia is a country known for its beautiful coastline and pristine beaches, but plastic pollution is clearly posing an ongoing threat to this reputation. Not only are some of the alternatives for traditional plastic items, which are labelled as environmentally friendly or biodegradable, still harmful, as we've just heard from Siobhan, but as our other experts have outlined throughout this episode, plastic's ability to persist means that one of the best things we can do to protect ourselves and our planet is to prevent plastic from entering the environment to begin with. The EPA is estimating that these new bans will prevent about 2.7 billion items from entering the environment in New South Wales over the next 20 years. 
Once upon a time, it used to be that archaeologists looked at stone tools because they were the things that survived. After that, you you know went on to some types of bones, some types of organics, whatever. Now the question for us is, how durable are plastics? You know, how long are we going to be looking at plastics in the archaeological record? For now, for the next several thousand years, this stuff preserves. We don't think it's going anywhere. Join us again in the next episode as we hear from a number of experts and organisations about how we're faring in the battle of plastic versus the environment. Plastic the Last Straw is produced by TuneFM at the University of New England in partnership with the Environmental Protection Authority of New South Wales.